Hello and welcome to the Brock Campus Conservatives podcast. The Brock Campus Conservatives podcast is a platform designed to open up a dialogue for members of the Brock community and to facilitate discussions on wide-ranging topics today. Participating with us are members of the Brock Campus Conservatives, Devin, Jack, Aiden, and Luca. Greetings, everyone. I ask that you please introduce yourselves. Hi guys, my name is Aiden. I'm obviously a member of the Brock Campus Conservatives and you know, I'm really excited to be having this conversation with everyone here today. My name's Devin. I'm the president of the Brock Campus Conservatives. I am as well uh, excited to talk about today's topic. Hey everyone, I'm Luca. I'm also part of the Brock Campus Conservatives and uh, I think we got a good episode for you planned out. Hi everyone, I'm Jack Fazari. I'm the vice president of the Brock Campus Conservatives. I'm excited to be here today and to be able to apply my uh, interpretation of certain current administrative issues in the United States, apply my opinion, and hopefully we'll have a good conversation. Today, we're going to be covering topics surrounding recent changes in American politics and their effects on Canada. For our first question, we'll be asking, what are your views on the switch to a Biden administration What changes do you believe this will mark for America? And what changes do you think this will mark for Canada? For this first question, uh, Devin, will you please start us off? I think the Biden administration poses new opportunities and new challenges to the Canadian government and I think Canada as a whole. I think so long as the Liberals are in power, I would argue that having Biden in charge rather than Trump is beneficial to the current government. However, the question is, obviously, as conservatives, do we want an American regime which is going to help our current liberal government, which obviously we we disagree with on on a number of issues, uh, push forward their agenda and uh, be more successful at doing so? I'm I'm optimistic as as well as hopeful that that uh, we will have better trade, better kind of agreements moving forward. But uh, I'm also wary of further political centralization on on the left. I'm just going to kind of hop off of what Devin said there. I agree with you fully, Devin. I think one thing that's going to happen, especially with the new administration, is I don't think there's going to be a lot of productive changes. I think there's going to be a lot of regression in terms of what the previous Trump administration did. I think there's going to be a lot of reverting back to traditional norms, especially with what happened in the Obama administration. One thing I'm not so looking forward towards is I feel a lot of the changes are just going to be uh, appealing to the greatest uh, percentage of people. I don't think they're necessarily going to be uh, changed to progress Canada or the United States in general. And I think now with having unity between ideologies, between the liberal government and the Biden administration, there's going to be a lot more free-flowing ideas between those two, which we necessarily won't be in accordance with being conservative. So if I can just jump in on that, then Aiden, obviously you're making some good points. And if I can piggyback off of a few ideas, uh, just thinking about what Devin was talking about. Um, Whether or not the Biden administration helps out the Canadians in any way is kind of yet to be foreseen. Uh, Obviously, like you say, with free trade and certain trade policies, um, we're seeing even in the current pandemic, like what it means to be nationalist and with the the current production of vaccines and uh, PPE, we already see that there is more of an America first uh, trend that's continuing under the Biden administration even though Trump spearheaded that uh, endeavor when he was elected in office in 2016. 
So obviously that poses a challenge to the Canadian economy that obviously we we're on the rebound right now. We need to be able to produce vaccines in Canada. And obviously if we're going to work with the U.S., we're not doing so well right now. <laughs> and if if that were the case, we would have a uh, coalition to get vaccines to both our jurisdictions, but that's few and far between. Um, just a few other things. Uh, Aiden spoke about regression, and I think that that's a very important thing to bring up because I believe uh, right now the Biden administration has an important decision to make. Are they going to be a administration that spearheads new policies, or are they going to be an administration that their sole focus is to erase and eliminate anything that Trump did? And does that mean free trade policies? Does that mean America first policies? Does that mean tax policies? There's a lot at stake for the Biden administration to determine what future they choose. We already have seen in the first week of his administration, they're removing uh, presidential guarantees for the Keystone XL pipeline. Uh, that's going to cost Canadian jobs. That's going to cost uh, Canadian oil prices and gas prices. We're already seeing the effects in southern Ontario as the Keystone XL pipeline was so important. And line five is subsequently affected by that decision. So it's an important consideration to uh, unpackage. Uh, I, I think it's really interesting to see what the Biden administration is doing, uh, how they're picking up on some of the old Trump policies without really uh, alluding to the fact that they're doing that, and that they're just trying to eliminate the past, with especially with the fact that they're pressing so hard on the impeachment and and what have you. So I think that's my early thoughts on the transition from a Trump to a Biden administration. And I'd like to see the Canadian dollar rebound if possible, because I know we've been in the dark for a little while in the past uh, four years, even six to eight years. So I'd like to see the Canadian economy do a little better after this pandemic, even with Biden in, in office. I think that the US with the Biden administration will be a more partisan because of course the Democrat party um, control both the House and the Senate. And I think already they've already passed a bill without a uh, GOP or Republican support. So I think the US will be of what I just said, a bit more partisan. And in my opinion, I'm not too concerned about Biden as a president. I'm more concerned about his party because I think that they'll be pushing a bit more progressive ideals. And I, don't, and I personally don't think that the US is um, ready for it yet on a social, from a social standpoint and economically as well, because those progressive ideas, although they might be good ideas depending on the U.S., it's going to talk, cost a lot of taxpayers money. And of course, the pandemic, taxpayers are pretty a little bit low on money right now. And uh, that's pretty much for the U.S. As for Canada's um, role in this, um, I don't really know yet. I can't, personally, I can't really tell where it's going to go with Canada because there hasn't really been much done between the U.S. and Canada under the new U.S. administration, except for the pipeline, as Jack mentioned. But um, as for the uh, effects of Canada, well, all I can say is we'll see. Kind of a piggyback off what Jack and Luca was saying. Um, I agree with you guys. I think one thing I'm most worried about, um, and obviously it's relatively new administration. We've yet to see really how their ideology and how the administration has worked in their newfound power. But I think one thing I'm really interested to see is are they just going to revert back on previous policy changes just to kind of spite the previous Trump administration? Or are they going to come up with new ideas and kind of progress forward? And I think the, the terminology that they used was they want to create unity. 
And I'm just curious as to what they necessarily mean by unity. Do they mean unity between both ideologies and both sides of the political spectrum? Or do they mean unity within their party and their party only is my biggest question. You know, funny that Aiden, that's really important that you bring that up because unity is so important for any party. And we'll see that in Ontario and with Canada, we need to find unity within the Conservative Party and we need to find unity in the Progressive Conservative Party. And I think what's an, an important distinction to make when it comes to the Democrats is will a Joe Biden administration be able to find unity between his camp and the old guard between them and people like AOC and all the new Democrats, all the progressivists, uh, all the people who are just completely on the different spectrum. And so it'll be interesting to see what this administration does and how they balance their needs versus the needs of the old guard and, so to speak, the swamp. Okay, and with that, we'll be moving on to our second topic of the evening. Upon taking office, President Biden canceled the U.S. portion of the Keystone XL pipeline. What impact do you believe this will have on Canada? And we'll start this one off with Jack. Well, thank you, Mark. And as I mentioned, obviously, with the distinct differences between the Biden administration and even just most recently the Trump administration and how their policies have a grave effect on our economy. I, I think it's just so important to highlight uh, the tragic decision to cancel the Keystone XL pipeline. And I think it's so important for us to talk about because as you can see today, like I'm just driving home from work and you can see that gas is going up and that's not due to to some fluke. That's due to policy decisions. And that just goes to show how uh, prevalent and how important the decision a president makes and how it can affect our economy in Canada and southern Ontario, to be specific. With that, I believe that it was the wrong decision. And I'm, I'm actually kind of surprised to see Joe Biden make that decision as much as I, well, maybe I'm not, because he is a little bit of a flip-flop, especially on his fracking ordeal and with his decision to, to cancel his pipeline. I'm just, I'm just surprised. And for a close al ally like Canada, I'm concerned with the relations that we're going to have moving forward. Um, as much as I'd like to see uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau work with Joe Biden for the greater good of the Canadian economy. I'm concerned with the decision that was made early on because that sets the tone and the groundwork for a future cooperation between both administrations. I'm gonna um, uh, have uh, my piece into this. I think that the cancellation of the Keystone XL pipeline, I think in particular will affect, at least in Canada, I think it will affect Alberta and their economy because already before the cancellation, the Albertan economy, was already teetering. The oil industry there was already cr not crippled, but it was in a good shape because of, of course, Trudeau and the Liberals' uh, carbon tax and a few other regulations that pretty much has not somewhat limited the oil capacity in Alberta. But I think that um, it, it will cost. It's going to cost jobs, and I think it might it might give a bit more speed to the um, uh, Alberta independence movement because I, I'm aware, and I think everybody not everybody, but some people might be too that. Due to the um, carbon tax and oil regulations, a few people in Alberta are questioning if they should remain part of Canada. And that is a big deal if they decide to go for a referendum or just declare independence completely. So I think that Trudeau really needs to, to put it, not to put, to put it lightly, men up against uh, Biden to defend the interests of Alberta 
And even if they decide to go the independence route, which I don't think they will, they might though, but if they do, to defend pretty much the interest of all of Canada. Yeah, I would uh, I would echo that. Um, part of the, the big concern that I have for the cancellation of the pipeline is just the main fact that like oil still needs to move and it's going to move to where it needs to go regardless of whether there's a pipeline or not. And the fact of the matter is it's more expensive, less environmentally friendly, and significantly less efficient to move it via rail, via freight, and uh, via sea than it is to do it over a pipeline. So I get the green arguments. You know, everybody wants to move towards a more sustainable um, and environmentally friendly world. But, uh, you know, getting and canceling pipelines, you know, like we still need this infrastructure for probably the next 50 years. Right. Um, and it's not like this money that's being used for Keystone is somehow going to miraculously build a wind farm next week. It's just not. So that's... Uh, the, the counterproductiveness of, of the decision is is what shocks me, and, and I'm sure this is just the first of, of many to come. Devin, I couldn't agree with you more on that statement. One thing I was reading about this project was, I believe uh, the whole point of the cancellation was to try and become a more green, um, trying to create more green alternatives and less emissions. But I think one of the biggest issues is without the infrastructure, like you said, um, we're not going to be able to just transition to all electric vehicles tomorrow. We're not going to be able to just all of a sudden use renewable energy overnight, right? So we're going to have to make sure that we have those uh, that plan at least in place to transition. And like you said, it may take decades to finally get there. So to cancel it on a dime like this, it's almost irresponsible in a sense for all those jobs, uh, those people who uh, could have potentially had and also the income. Uh, like Jack was saying, you know, now we're going to have gas prices that increase and that's not going to stop. And that's going to be a ripple effect to many other industries as well. One thing that I saw was, I believe it's uh, TC is actually the, the company that is overseeing the Keystone XL uh, project. And it was $1.7 billion by 2030 they were going to invest to have net uh, carbon emissions. So basically to offset any kind of emissions that were an offspring of this project. Another thing is for Canadians, it currently employs 140,000 Canadians and it was set to grow by 500,000 jobs. So that's significant for the economy to lose that. Um, so I, I think it's definitely a bit unfortunate to see this just be canceled on a dime, especially without any kind of transition plan. You know, I like where you're going with that. And I think the transition plan should incorporate uh, something like Canadian jobs. And I'm a huge proponent of uh, Canada first, and I like to see Canadians succeed. Uh, and I, I find it very disappointing that we're putting this uh, pipeline uh, backwards because I think that if we kept on going with this we would be doing this in Canada we would be attaching our regulations our standards uh, our green thumb on this pipeline and I think if to keep jobs in Canada over importing from OPEC in like OPEC countries I think that's the better decision at the end of the day and like like you say Luca we have so many resources in Canada why not utilize what we have here and do it the right way uh keep prices down in canada it, it's just the responsible thing to do and with regards to the transition and stopping on the dime why would we want to get rid of these jobs why wouldn't we want to be supporting the alberta economy we have no chance 
it's an impossibility to just say to these people who have now lost their jobs, you need to go get a new background. You need to go find a new job when they've spent so much time working there. And now they're not going to be competitive in the job market because they just lost their trade and there's not going to be a job to replace that. So I think it's just irresponsible in general to make this decision because there's going to be so much so many jobs lost, especially with the current climate and the pandemic. That's just the Alberta economy suffering and the Canadian economy suffering in general, because there's so many multiplier effects with an economic decision like this. And that's at the, end, at the end of the day, that's what this is. It's an economic decision. So I'm really disappointed and I really hope that something is done in the future to safeguard against these terrible decisions. Moving on to our next question. What are your reactions re-entering the Paris Climate Accord Agreement? Is this agreement sufficient or are there better alternatives to be considered? We'll have Aiden start us off on this one. For sure. Thank you, Mark. So one thing about the, the Paris Climate Accord, one thing I find really, really interesting is when when the government decided to re-enter, it almost seems like they're flip-flopping between having one foot in the door and having one foot out. And the whole thing about the Paris Climate Accord, in theory, is that it's absolutely great for trying to look like we're, we're trying to make a difference. And I think it definitely sparks enthusiasm towards wanting to become more eco-friendly, which I don't think for the most part people would oppose. However, the way that they, the governments that all come together go about that isn't necessarily productive in the end. I think it just necessarily spews a lot of rhetoric that doesn't actually be followed up by plan. For example, I know that a lot of the plans aren't legally binding. Therefore, people, um, the, the world leaders who basically commit to these uh, objectives that they need to reach, there's no repercussions to not reaching those. Therefore, a lot of the times it makes great headlines to say that you're a part of these deals, but in the end, if you don't reach your goals, which sometimes happens, there's no repercussions, and in the at the end of the day, it's not necessarily productive. So joining this may just be another attempt um, to create a, a positive headline, but we'll have to see what comes of it in the future. I'd like to think that the Paris Climate Accord is just another... Another checkpoint on the globalist agenda, and I'm obviously not a huge fan of the globalist agenda, and I think that it's just a empty promise with, again, there's no repercussions for not meeting targets, and it's just truly uh, nations, quote-unquote, committing to doing something that they may or may not do. Uh, I like real action, decisive action, things that actually make a difference, and I'm all for uh saving the planet and making sure nature prevails overall and you know making sure that we breathe in fresh air but i also think we're not holding people to account especially nations that are doing the most damage and i just and i just think that the united states is paying the price with their economy their people by entering into a climate accord when the climate is encompassing the entire planet and you don't have the nations that are polluting the most, paying top dollar, top price for damaging the, the planet, that's unacceptable. So I'm speaking directly at China, India, and those nations that are doing the most damage to our climate. And we have the United States, which is comprised of 380 million people, give or take, who are doing Obviously, they have, and, and we'll all hear it from the left saying they have the most per capita pollution, yada, yada, yada. But at the end of the day, total volume is coming from China and India. Like, I don't care. And, and this point is very important. China and India need to be penalized 
for the pollution that they are putting into our air and into our atmosphere. It, you can't penalize the, the small, minute percentage of people who are doing the least damage. And same thing goes with Canada, where I completely disagree with Justin Trudeau on the carbon tax. And I know this has nothing to do with the Paris Climate Accord, but it's a part of their goals to reach certain net zero and temperatures in the planet. Like we're doing the least damage in Canada to the to the climate, and I don't understand what a carbon tax is going to do for the climate. All it does is disincentivize uh, consumer purchases and behaviors. Like, and at the end of the day, when you put a when you put tax on a product that is a commodity, all it is is just making the consumer suffer. And to me, that's reprehensible. And I think that the United States government, namely the Biden administration, re-entering the Paris Climate Accord is only just putting an increased burden on their people. And I'm speaking truly because I believe that it is solely an empty promise. And you can only make so many commitments before you actually do something and hold the right people, the right nations, and the right governments accountable for their careless, lackluster uh, decisions and their impacts on our economy and our climate. So that's where I stand on the Paris Climate Accord Agreement. Um, yeah, I just want to hop in here quick. Um, I think that the Paris Climate Agreement was really well-intentioned, uh, but ultimately it, it really doesn't serve a value or a, a purpose because it doesn't have any it doesn't have any actual methods of making sure that the people commit to their commit to what they said they were going to do. And when you have nations who can back out or defer, um, you know, their promises, then it, it really serves no purpose. However, and I, I don't mean to disagree with Jack, but uh, the United States does need to do a better job. Um, China produces twice as much CO2 as the United States. And I think China's population is like, what, four or five times the size of the United States. So I think that's almost reasonable. Um, whereas the United States is second in terms of global CO2 emissions, and then the European Union, and then India. And India only represents um, almost... India is only half of what the United States produces, and they have a, over a billion people as well. So I, I, I do think that everybody needs to do their part. I think, uh, you know, nations like Canada, um, we should just focus on sustainability rather than, you know, killing our economy. I think everybody should just focus on sustainability and, um, and moving forward in conjunction with others. Nobody should destroy their economy. We should use the full power of our economy transform ourselves into more sustainable and uh, effective solutions that are going to power future economies. And, uh, and that's, a, that's an economic argument, really. I'm going to jump in here. I think uh, going to what Jack said about the globalist agenda, I think the Paris Accord would be yet another failure of the globalist agenda, because let's not forget here that this is not the first time that the nations in the world, most nations in the world, China, but have uh, agreed to do um, uh, an environment thing. Because remember, in the 1980s and 90s, in early 2000s, I think, too, let's not forget, they signed the Montreal Protocol. That didn't work out. Then they signed the Kyoto Protocol in Japan. That really didn't work out because 
even during the negotiations for that, there were people protesting outside the uh, conference building in Japan. And I think this is not going to work out because clearly, as we all have pretty much provided a full consensus on, nobody's going to listen. And the people who should be pretty much targeted for it aren't. And China is one of them. And the European Union, since Devin brought that up, we have to remember the European Union is made up by 28 countries. So that's pretty much 28 countries, 27, I think now, 27 countries or 28 added on to all each other. That's why you get that large number. But if you divide it by all of them individually, that, that's a pretty small number compared to what India, the US, and of course, especially China produces. So I think, like what Jack said, it's going to be a, just another failure on the um, silly-ish globalist agenda. I just wanted to fact check myself a little more on um, the Paris Agreement because I, I, I brought up some stats on the internet here and I just kind of found the actual total CO2 emissions from each country. And and Devin, you're right, like the United States does produce a lot of CO2 emissions, but that doesn't excuse the fact that China represents 28% of global emissions in the entire world. India represents 7%. So between them, they almost represent 35% of global emissions in the entire world. And if I could restructure my argument to almost eliminate my support for the United States, I would. Because what I really want to do is support uh, removing the carbon tax because I don't agree with the fact that we're paying the price for only representing 2% of global emissions in the entire world. Like we only produce 0.56 gigatons in Canada and China produces 10.06 gigatons of carbon dioxide emissions. So I just, if I could rephrase and restructure my argument, I would do it in a way that totally just removes my support for the United States on that decision, but still talks about the fact that I don't agree with the Paris Climate Accord um, because I still think it's an empty promise. But I also think that it would be restructured in a way that I'm supporting Canada. I have by no fans, by no means a fan of the, the China. Um, I, quite frankly, I wouldn't use the word hate, but I, I really dislike the Chinese government. <laughs> um, but, you know, for only making up 30% of world emissions, and I think they produce what, like almost half of like all consumable goods. Um, like, I think if any other country tried to produce as much as China produced, they would produce probably twice, if not three or five times the amount of emissions that they do. Um, so quite frankly, I hate, I, I don't like China, but uh, in terms of their population and in terms of how much they produce, representing only 30% of all CO2 emissions is actually like really small. And even more can be said for India. Like India has got a billion people and they produce a shit ton of stuff. Um, but you know, they only represent 6.6% of global emissions. So, you know, like we can, we can make fun of them and, and say that they need to do more, uh, and they do need to do more, but, uh, I don't want to discredit them cause they're doing a lot. No, I, I agree. And I obviously to a certain extent, um, well, I 100% agree. I completely uh, despise the Chinese government. I don't like anything that they do. I think they're weasels, and I think that they are uh, tampering with the world right now. But I also, to a certain extent, disagree with you on uh, the would have, should have, could have 
aspect uh, with China and their population and trend analysis, et cetera. If the United States were as big, it would have been. It doesn't matter. Right now, we have a lot of people on Earth, and the biggest emitter of carbon emissions is China. And as it stands today, they're not paying the price for the damage they've done. And damage is in the past. We're dealing with the past damage today. So there's nothing you can say about the fact that we're paying the price in Canada for China's poor decisions. We could go on about, you know, supporting China. By no means do I support China and want to continue doing business with China. But that's due to the previous governments that we've had in Canada and the United States. And if I were around then, I would have been against it then. And I would be for there's so many things we could talk about free trade, why we're now supporting China and why we're having all our goods and services produced in China. Maybe it's because we don't want to pay the same price, et cetera, et cetera. But I also just want to make the statement that for the sake of argument, for the fact that we're paying the price for China's irresponsible decision to produce 28% of the global carbon emissions today, as of February 8th, 2021, they produce 10.56 gigatons of global emissions. So I just, that's that's where I stray away from you, Devin, where I do agree that obviously Canada could do a little more, we could be more sustainable and we could do it more responsibly. We could maybe reduce emissions in the process by using Canadian oil or investing in carbon capture technology or planting a bunch of trees, who knows? But I also think that we shouldn't continue to support regimes like China. It's just irresponsible for us to do that. And we're promoting the wrong people if we have a different vision altogether. So that's where I stand on this particular decision. Yeah, I I agree with you there, Jack. By no means am I saying um, that I want to do business in China because I think they're efficient. Like I'm in in favor of completely cutting ourselves off from them. Um, But... uh, like for what they produce in terms of total production versus how much carbon they produce, it's, it's, they're actually really, really good at doing that. Um, and that's, you know, by no means am I trying to say China's great. I think they're horrible, but uh, they're pretty good at, at lowering emissions um, comparatively, like production to emissions than, than any other country really, other than like Scandinavia and stuff. I think they'll hop in on this. One thing that I'm a little bit concerned about is realistically, even joining the Paris Climate Accord for anyone is still going to leave opportunity for, for example, Canada, a country smaller than Canada to point the finger at us and say, oh, well, they're a bigger emitter. And then for us to point to, for example, China uh, and say they're a bigger emitter than us. I think we need to come together and have a unified perspective so we can all come together. And I think what we need to do is we need to tailor how much you need to be cutting your emissions relative um, to how much you emit, whether that be per capita. And I think there needs to be a strong structure behind that. And there needs to be real reliability that that will actually be achieved, or at least a a measurable um, effort put behind that. Because right now, realistically, as we discussed, um, it's more so of a perspective. Uh, It's more so of something that looks good for headlines, but isn't necessarily aiding us in any capacity and it just really gets tricky especially with what Devin and Jack were saying about China Um, it gets really difficult because they are 
a massive proponent uh, proponent of many of our commerce products. So if we were to start putting sanctions on different trade products, it could end badly for not just us, United States, but many other countries. So I'm not necessarily saying there's one specific easy uh, alternative to take for this, but I think there needs to be a reworking of these this Paris Climate Accord if we want it to be effective. Okay, and thank you all. And with that final conversation, I believe we'll be ending our podcast for tonight. We look forward to having you join us again for further discussions on the podcast. Thank you once again to all of our participants and to everyone who came out to listen to the Brock uh, Campus Conservatives podcast. Uh, Thank you all. Stay safe, take care, and have a great evening.